The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bible, if you would, please, and open to Matthew chapter 24. And I want you to find that scripture rather quickly because uh, I want to get right into the reading of the text. And I have a very special topic that I want to discuss with you today. So we're looking in Matthew chapter 24, and uh, we have marked here on your lesson sheet and on the screen, I think, that we're going to study verses 21 through 24. But I want to back up just a little bit before that to verse number 15. Uh, to keep our thoughts going here and to keep in order. So if you'll go back to verse number 15, Matthew chapter 24. And I know you're just anxious to stand again, so let's stand as we read God's word. Matthew 24, starting at verse number 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand... Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word today, and we ask you, Father, that you would bless as we discuss our topic this morning. Be with us, Lord, and open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, for these past several weeks, we've been discussing the subject of eschatology. Uh, that is the doctrine of the last things or the doctrine of end times. And as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, we've, we've taken our time to study verse by verse and We've carefully considered a wide range of subjects, and we're, we've discussed all of those. And that's one of the reasons that I really like verse-by-verse -verse study, because we're not uh, forced into certain topics that we just want to talk about, but rather we take the Word of God as it comes to us, and we discuss all the things that are here, and it's led us into a lot of different areas of God's Word. Now, in Matthew 24, we find here that the disciples had asked Jesus some very important questions. They'd followed Jesus for three years, and as he approached the end of his ministry in chapters 21 through 27, you can well imagine that there were important teachings that Jesus wanted to finalize with his disciples before he went to the death of the cross. What happens next? And that's pretty much, in one way, the questions that are asked in verse number 3 of chapter 24. The disciples had read the prophecies of the Old Testament, and they knew that the Messiah would come. And they also knew that with his arrival, there would be this triumph for Israel. That Israel would be restored into a glorious kingdom that would extend to the ends of the earth. And they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and they did believe that somehow that the kingdom would come, because that's what the Word of God says. But Jesus gave them a much different view in this chapter as he answered their questions. The kingdom that they thought was soon upon them was not coming soon. That the kingdom was off in the future, and before this chapter is over, he describes an electrifying second coming which is preceded by a terrible time of tribulation. There are seven years of destruction that will come upon the earth, and during that time, Israel will be a focus of a campaign of elimination. 
And so the disciples did want to know, when will the kingdom come? And in this chapter, Jesus pointed to these seven years of terrible tribulation as being the sign that the kingdom was about to begin. Now, I want you to notice verse number 24. Here Jesus uses a special term that we've not yet seen in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Since this is Matthew then, this is the first time that this is used in the New Testament, although we do find it in the Old. And the word here is elect. In Isaiah, in the Old Testament, we find the word elect used four times. Once it's used to refer to Christ, who is the one who is elect, who is the chosen one of God, who would bring judgment upon the world. Three times in the book of Isaiah, the word elect refers to those who have been chosen by God as special objects of his love, that these are God's chosen people, a chosen nation. And then also in that fourth instance where Isaiah speaks of Israel as being the elect of God, he also mentions a man by the name of Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus was uh, the king who allowed Judah to return to rebuild the temple. Uh, Judah came back from the captivity and Cyrus gave a commission for the rebuilding of the temple. And Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 45 verse number 4, For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect, I have called thee, that is Cyrus, by thy name, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Now that's a most interesting verse because it very clearly shows that God's choice of Cyrus was a sole act of God's divine will. That God chose Cyrus to do what he wanted him to do without securing Cyrus' permission for him to do it. Cyrus did not know God. And you might keep that in mind for future reference. Now the idea that God chooses people is prevalent throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, we're just four chapters in, and we find that God had chosen Abel instead of Cain. And then in the end of the fourth chapter of Genesis, the scripture says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And so there, in that verse, we find not only has God chosen Abel instead of Cain, but God has chosen Seth instead of Cain in order to carry on the ancestry of Christ. But perhaps the best, most well-known choice of the Old Testament is when Abraham was chosen to be the father of many nations. Or we might say that he was the father of many chosen people. So God chooses. The Bible teaches that God chooses. And it shows us that God has the sovereign right to choose one person over another. Now in Matthew chapter 24, the word elect is used in verse number 22. And then in verse number 24, we find it. And then once again, in a verse that we didn't read, in verse number 31. And in that verse it says, And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now there the word is elect. And the Bible does not say believers here. It doesn't say Christians. It says elect. But it should be obvious to us that what he is speaking of is believers. And that he's speaking about Christians. And he's talking about people that God has decided to save out of a world of unbelievers. And these are very special objects of his love and his protection during this terrible time of tribulation that will come upon the earth. And according to verse number 31, it says that the angels are going to gather all of the elect of God unto him. Now the Bible has some very interesting things to say about the elect. As I said, this is the first time that it's used in the New Testament, but it's by no means the last. The elect are actually the people that the New Testament was written to. In the teachings of Jesus, especially as you read what Jesus said in the book of John, and then in the epistles and in the rest of the New Testament, we find that not only were the Jews the elect of God, but there are also Gentiles that are chosen as well. So the elect are a vast number of people that God has chosen for his own. And that shouldn't seem to be strange to us at all because the Bible is full of divine selections. Noah and his family, 
were chosen out of all the people in the world. Only eight people, Noah and his family, were chosen to go into the ark to be saved from the flood. Now, I mentioned Abraham, and Abraham is an interesting case. The apostle Paul used him as an example to show that God chooses according to his divine pleasure. And that God doesn't choose because of something that he has seen in us. Abraham was chosen when he didn't know anything about God. The Bible says that he was an idol worshiper. He was living in a heathen land, and yet God called him out, specially chose him, and gave him a vast inheritance. And again, he said, you're going to be the father of many nations. A little bit later in the Old Testament, we find that Isaac was chosen instead of Ishmael, and Jacob was chosen instead of Esau. And it was David that God selected among seven other brothers. David was the one who's chosen by God. Jeremiah, uh, God said about him, I knew you before you were born and ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. And I could go on and on and on and I could show you that God is always making these distinctions, that he always has a divine selection of certain people. And so it shouldn't be any wonder that we come to the New Testament and we find the same doctrines being taught, that God has chosen certain individuals and Jesus refers to them as the elect. Now there's not any way that we can get around this, that God chooses people, that God chooses some and not others. The fact that God makes his choice, makes a choice, is not really in dispute among Christians. I mean, almost all Christians believe that God makes his choices but how and why that those choices are made, that's a different matter. Now, perhaps the most intriguing part, when the Bible begins to talk to us about election, is the timing of God's selection. When did God choose his people? Well, the Bible doesn't leave any doubt about that either. They were chosen before the world was ever created. In fact, before God ever created people, even before people were created, God had chosen some of them. In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul said, He had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, in our study of the tribulation in Matthew chapter 24, uh, we've referenced the book of Revelation several times. And I'd like you to turn there for just a minute to... Revelation 13, chap, uh, chapter 13, verse number 8. And here we find uh, some very important information about the elect people that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 24. Now here the subject under discussion in Revelation 13 is the Antichrist. And where we started reading in Matthew 24 at verse number 15, that was also speaking of the Antichrist. And here in Revelation 13, it tells us about people who will be deceived to worship the Antichrist. Now, notice who they are. It says in verse number 8, Revelation 13, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, that is the Antichrist, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. And so the ones that worship the Antichrist are those whose names are not written in the book of life. Now obviously there are some then who do have their names written in the book of life and they don't worship the Antichrist. And those people are the same as the elect that Jesus speaks about in Matthew chapter 24. And as a complementary statement to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, it tells us here in Revelation that these names were recorded in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Now, you might just want to mark down a, another verse there in Revelation that will help you to, to see that also. Revelation 17 verse 8 also tells us this, that the names are there before the foundation of the world. And so it should be obvious to us that God did not write down their names when they believed. But these are people that are already chosen from before the foundation of the world, and God wrote down their names. Now, contrary to that, there is a popular old song that says there is a new name written down in glory. And the gist of that song is that when people believe that God writes down the name, so that every time somebody gets saved, there's a new name that's written down in this book of life. Well, there never was a song that was more unscriptural than that because there aren't any new names that are written down. 
All of these names have been recorded before the foundation of the world. They were written in the Lamb's book of life. And so these names are not new names, they're old names. In fact, they're old as they can possibly be because they're written before people were even created. That's what the Word of God says. Now, it should also be obvious to us that they couldn't have been written down because of anything that they did. They're not even born yet. And so God hasn't chosen them or did not choose them because they did something. Now, what I'd like to do for the next few minutes, and that's few minutes relative to all the minutes in the day, so you don't get confused. Um, I want to steer us away from our regular study of Matthew chapter 24 and the subject of the end times to talk about this very important doctrine of, of God's elect. Now, you, you'll have to excuse me because for the next two weeks I'm going to go theological on you. And you don't need to be afraid of that because it's not like going postal or anything. I mean, it's not going to hurt you. Uh, here, here at Berean, we believe in using the Bible. And so we're going to take the Bible's tough subjects as they come. And, and this happens to be one of those tough subjects. And, and you'll, you'll pardon my analogy, but I'm afraid that there are many Christians that are like beer drinkers. And, and this is not a commendation of beer drinkers, and I'm not saying that. But most Christians are like beer drinkers because they like the Bible light. They like the less filling version. I mean, uh, when, when you start preaching about doctrine, the people of God start to choke a little bit on that because doctrine is dry and dusty. And when you go theological on them, they lose their focus and they look like a deer in the headlights. And that might be too many analogies for one point, but I think you get what I'm trying to say to you. And so as I'm preaching these next couple of sermons on the doctrine of God's election, I'll know when you start to get glassy-eyed that you're getting choked on the doctrine of God's Word. Now, the best way to keep from being choked is to sit up and pay attention, listen, look at your Bible as we go through this, and uh, if you don't do that, then you're going to be confused. You're not going to know the end from the beginning. None of it's going to make sense to you. So you have to pay particular attention. Now, I want to talk to you about the doctrine of election. And this is not an obscure, veiled teaching of Scripture. It's prominent, in fact. And it's so prominent that we do find it in the lives of the Bible's most prominent figures. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and Jeremiah, the disciples, the apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest of all the apostles, who said, I am as one chosen out of due time. But here's the very best thing that you can learn about this doctrine, that it's not only the Bible's most prominent figures that were selected by God, but it's you. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you were chosen by God. And you were chosen before you were born. And he loved you before you were born. And he chose you just as surely as he did David. And as he did Abraham. And he did all those Old Testament patriarchs that the Bible talks about in God's divine selection. And that when God chose you, he loved you first. Always remember that. He loved you first before you ever could have loved him. And your salvation in him was secured by this election, by this selection, by the choice that God made before the foundation of the world. Now, all of that's true. And the Bible says that it's true. And yet, the doctrine of election is one of the most hated of all Bible doctrines. Now, we really ought to love this doctrine as much as we love Jesus Christ. We ought to love it because Jesus said that those who have been chosen by God have been given to him by the Father. That God has selected us. That God sent Jesus to die for us. And if you want to understand how important that that is, that what Jesus said about this, then consider what Jesus prayed in the most prominent prayer, the most intimate prayer that he ever prayed. That was in John 17. Would you turn there for just a minute? John chapter 17. And this was the night when Jesus was betrayed to be crucified. And do you know what Jesus was thinking about in that terrible hour? Was he thinking about trying to escape the cross? Was he thinking about, is there some way that I can get out of this? Can I save my skin in some way? Oh, well, Jesus wasn't thinking of himself at all, but rather he was thinking about his people. He was thinking about those that God had given him. 
These are the people that are on his mind as he prays. Now, if you look at John 17, beginning in verse number 1, Jesus prays, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, do you see what he says? Some have been given to the Son, and in turn they are given eternal life. Now, do you see the definition of eternal life right there in verse number 3? Eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ, who is sent by the Father. Now, do you want to know something else? Uh, of all the people that have lived on the earth, who would you say is the person who had the highest purpose? Who would you think has the highest purpose of anybody who's ever lived? Well, I don't think any of us would argue this, that Jesus Christ, who came into the world to die for sin, had the highest purpose of any person who ever lived on the face of the earth. And you know what his purpose was? Well, he states it here in verse number 1 that thy Son may glorify thee. Well, how do you suppose that the Son would glorify the Father? Did he glorify the Father because he died? Is the death of the cross itself the glorification of the Father? Well, even the Apostle Paul said that Christ's death was scandalous. He said that the cross is an offense. So the death of the Son of God could never be glorifying to God unless it was conjoined with this, that it must be through his death that he would give life, that he would give life to as many as were given to him by the Father, that he would fulfill that very purpose that he speaks of there in John chapter 17, that God had given these ones to him and he came to give his life for them and his purpose is fulfilled as he brings those people to eternal life. Now, folks, that puts the election of God on a whole different level. God's selection of certain individuals exalts him. It magnifies him. It magnifies his mercy and his grace. And it skyrockets his love to a place that you could never put it because you find out that all of this is grounded in the love of God himself and the purpose of God himself. There is no other grounds for the selection of God and the love of God and the, and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross other than this is just what the Father wanted to do. This is what he wanted to happen. And so it displays in a most uncommon way that Christ's death accomplished everything that it was intended to do. This is the way he glorifies the Father, by giving eternal life to those that have been given to him. Now what this means is that Christ saved, and he will save everyone that he intended to save. That these are ones who are given to him by the Father. And he said that none of them are going to perish. Now you can argue with that all you want, but you'll find yourself arguing against the prophets and against Peter and against John and against Paul and most importantly, you'll be arguing against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He said, I came to give life to as many as those that are given to him by the Father. So those are the ones that the Father chose. And so if you are saved, then you're one that the Father chose. I don't know how you can feel bad about that. I don't know how this makes the doctrine of election a terrible thing. I mean, I would think that the thing that you would want to do is fall down on your knees and you couldn't do anything other than praise God because you know that of all the people in the world, he chose you, that he died to save you. And I don't know how it could possibly be better to say that the death of Christ secured the salvation of no one, but that what it actually did was just give people a possibility to be saved. I don't think the Bible teaches that. I think the Bible teaches that Christ came to seek and to save the lost. And that he's the good shepherd who always finds the one that he's looking for. And who does he look for? He looks for those that are given to him by the Father. Now, I like this response that one lady had when she, when she came to the realization that she'd been chosen by God. Now, this lady was a Christian, of course, but like most Christians today, and unfortunately like most Baptist people today, she'd been taught that salvation was because of her good sense. 
that her salvation came because she had good sense and she weighed this whole thing out and she decided that she would choose God rather than God choosing her. But then she found out that God chose her and it really changed her whole perspective about salvation. Let me read to you what she said. Over and over I keep saying to myself like someone rescued from a sinking vessel when others are lost, why me? Why me? When I woke up in the morning, I used to feel tired and exhausted and wish I didn't have to go to work. Now, almost as soon as I'm conscious, I have the feeling that something new and exciting has happened. And then it flashes across my mind in a wave of remembrance, you are elected. And I get so excited, I'm wide awake instantly and ready to be up and doing. I cannot explain it. But somehow, as long as you feel that you had the least little bit to do with your own conversion, it takes away some of the thrill and the bloom of it. But when the full impact of the thought of realization hits you that not only the provision of salvation is due to God's grace, but also the choice of you as the recipient, one can only stand back and marvel, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Now, oddly enough, in spite of that, there are people who hate the doctrine of election. And they despise that God specifically has chosen anyone. Despite the fact that God chose Abraham, and God chose David, and God chose Jeremiah, and God chose Paul, they don't like this. As much as we passionately love this doctrine, they passionately hate it. There's a well-known Baptist preacher that said that he could never be friends with anyone who believes what I'm going to preach to you in these two messages. He would never let me stand in his pulpit and say what I'm going to say to you in these messages. He hates it, and he's not the only person that does. There are many others that are just like him. There are some who say that this is a doctrine that makes God a monster. And there are some who say that it makes God unfair. And there are others who say that that it makes people robots and it destroys the will. Some say and some say and some say, but it doesn't really matter what some say, it matters what God says. And so we're going to look at those objections a little bit later on and we'll give a biblical response to those and maybe some others as well. The Puritan William Perkins said, we must not think that God does a thing because it is good and right but rather the thing is good and right because God does it. Now let me say that again in case you were sleeping through it. We must not think that God does a thing because it is good and right, but rather the thing is good and right because God does it. And I would refer you to the Apostle Paul who agreed with that when he said, And nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? God is the one who sets the standard. No one says to God, God, what do you think you're doing? So it's the doctrine of election. We love it. Thank God we understand it. And I'll tell you, it's not that we understand it because we have good sense that others don't have. We understand it only by the grace of God, that he's opened our eyes to this. Now, in the words of this lady, she also said, it is humbling and breathtaking and frightening and thrilling all at once. I just can't get over it to think that all these years I've missed this tremendous teaching and the thrill and the joy of it. Now, I don't know how long that you've missed it, but I don't want you to miss it any longer. And so we're going to talk about this. And hopefully this will make your salvation more thrilling than you can ever imagine. Just to know this, that if you believe... If you have trusted Christ, it's because the almighty, loving, merciful, gracious Heavenly Father chose you. And that's why you know him. Well, what is it? What is it that has people so stirred up over this issue that they just turn against it and they hate it? Well, let's start with this. Let's start with a definition. A definition of election. And I have a lot of theologians that I could choose from to give you the definition. As I said, it's not an obscure doctrine of Scripture. But as a Baptist, and as a historic Baptist at that, I think that I should give you a definition that agrees, first of all, with Scripture, and then secondly, with the old historic Baptist confessions of faith that are based upon the Scripture. 
Now, there really isn't a secret uh, about what Baptists have historically taught on the subject. And, and I'm not talking about in the last 50 years. I'm speaking in the last 300 years, 400 years, 500 years. I'm talking about going all the way back to the time of Jesus Christ. So I'm a Baptist, and I'm going to give you an historical Baptist definition. This one comes from Augustus Strong, who is considered one of the foremost theologians of any denomination. And Strong was a Baptist minister who helped to found the Rochester Theological Seminary. And this is his definition given on page 427 of his systematic theology. He said, Election is that eternal act of God by which in its sovereign pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, he chooses certain ones out of the number of sinful men to be the recipients of the special grace of his spirit and to be made voluntary partakers of Christ's salvation. Now, there's a lot that's packed into that statement, and we can't explore all of it in one sermon, but let's take a look at some of this. That first phrase says, election is the eternal act of God. Now, first I have to tell you that election is grounded in the attributes of God. If you've come to Wednesday night fundamentals class, you understand what the attributes of God are, that these are his characteristics. These are things that make him God instead of you. These are things that... Uh, characteristics that God possesses without which he could not be God. And one of those attributes is God's eternality. And the eternality of God assumes that he's transcendent over his creation and never dependent upon his creation. In other words, God is the creator. He's before the creation. And therefore, there are no actions of the creature that can determine what God does. God does what he does, whether you like it or not. And like William Perkins said, whatever he does is right simply because he does it. Well, we already know that the Bible teaches election, and I could go ahead and give you a whole list of God's attributes that would help to prove that election is certain. But for the sake of time, I've chosen to give you only two. Now, I've actually given you an extra one. That's eternality. That one's free. You can write that one down if you want to. But I'm going to give you just... Two more that help to show us that, that God's selection, that God's choice and election has to be a true doctrine. Now, the first proof is God's immutability. Immutability means that God cannot change. That God doesn't start out one way and through some twist become something else. That God doesn't morph. God's not like a toy transformer that you twist and turn, and when you're through, you've turned him into something different. Now, what God always was, God always is. And God always will be. He said, I am God, and I change not. And that would tell us that whatever's in the mind of God has always been in the mind of God. And we can say this, say this as well, that whatever was in the will of God has always been in the will of God. And it's always going to be in the will of God. And so if it's in the will of God for an individual to be saved, then it's always been in God's will for that person to be saved. I don't think there's anybody that argues that people are saved outside of God's will. Well, we know that if somebody's saved, it must have been God's will for that person to be saved. Now, we could make an argument that God wills for all people to be saved, and that would make sense to us because... It's God's will to be glorified, and people that aren't saved don't glorify God. But when we come to this, this, this will of God's decree about whether he has decided that every person will be saved, then we know that that can't be true because everybody's not saved. So we know that God has not decreed that every single person is going to be saved. So we can't say then that there's a will of decree uh, in God for the salvation of every single person. And that couldn't be because if it was in God's will for that to happen, and that was God's will of decree, then every person would be saved. And that's what we call universal salvation. And there is no such thing, as you well know, of universal salvation. Now, since God doesn't change, then it shouldn't be any mystery to us that he would have a book in which are written the names of everyone who would believe because it's always been his intention for them to believe. God doesn't change. God doesn't change his intentions because God never develops new purposes. God 
is nothing like us. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the contingencies of all events. And so there's nobody that ever sneaks up on God and says, Surprise! God ruins every surprise. And so the immutability of God shows that the election of God must be true, and it must have been determined, just as the Bible says, before the foundation of the world. And so if God wrote a name down, which in itself is according to this election, then that person must come to the knowledge of the truth. And if a name has not been written down, it doesn't matter how much time that passes, that name is never going to be written down. Now you might struggle with that, but how are you going to get around the immutability of God? Now the second proof that I would give you of God's attributes is God's omniscience that God knows everything that can possibly happen. And not only does God know that they will happen, but God's knowledge is based upon the fact that he ordains it to happen. That God has foreknowledge of all events and of all people, but we're not to think that God is like a fortune teller, that he just knows events, but he doesn't have any control over them. Oh, the foreknowledge of God is based in his eternal purpose. He knows what will happen because he planned for it to happen. In other words, God's foreknowledge is based upon his decree. Now, let me give you some scripture on that so that you just don't think I'm expressing an opinion. I mean, I'm content to let the Bible speak for itself, confident that scripture can speak. So let's look at this verse or these couple of verses in Romans chapter 8, which are familiar to you. Uh, to most Bereans here. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, which says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now you'll notice there that it says, For whom he did foreknow. It's not what... He did for no. And you have to guard yourself against those who misinterpret the scriptures and make God's election merely to service. He doesn't say what. He says whom. God foreknew them. Now, Augustus Strong made this statement in his definition. Election is that eternal act of God, which in his sovereign pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, he chooses certain ones. Now, one of the common arguments against God's free choice in election is that God chooses based upon seeing what we will do. That God saw that we would believe, and so God chose those who will believe. And that's what's called election based upon foreseen faith. In other words, God doesn't determine salvation for anyone but that he just looked down through time and he saw that a person would believe and based upon that he chose that person. Well, I would say that the old confessions of Baptists specifically address that error with the same statement that's made by Augustus Strong. And there is a view of election that's fraught with so many problems that we don't really need to even give that an answer. But that's the one that most people use it's an answer that sinks beneath its own weight or a statement that sinks beneath its own weight and more importantly, it sinks beneath the weight of Scripture. Now the problem here in all of this is the definition of foreknowledge. What does it mean when Paul said, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate? Well, foreknowledge by design must include God's purpose. The immutability of God has already established that. God foreknew the individual, and he put that individual into his eternal purpose. Well, where do we find Scripture on that? I mean, where can we find Scripture that tells us that God's foreknowledge equates with his eternal purpose? Well, let's look at that. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to find it. 1 Peter chapter 1. The apostle Peter speaks on this subject here in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll start reading at verse number 1. 1 Peter 1, verse number 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now there we find these two words, elect and foreknowledge. Now does this mean that election is is based upon God foreknowing events? Or does it mean that this election or foreknowledge is based upon God knowing people in a very intimate way and that he's put those people into his eternal purpose? How do we know that? Well, let's look down in this same chapter at verse number 18. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 18. It says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now, do you see that word foreordained in verse number 20? That is the same as foreknowledge in verse number 2. In one case, we have a verb. In the other case, a noun. Now, I would ask you, would we argue that God only knew that Christ would be crucified? Or did God plan that to be so? Was the death of Christ a chance happening? Or is that by the design of God? Well, I think we all know that God designed this. God knew exactly what would happen to Christ. He planned and he purposed for him to be our Redeemer. Now, Peter, who, who wrote this epistle, preached that famous sermon on Pentecost in which he said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and, listen, foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, Peter's perfectly consistent with himself. It's no accident that he exposits his own sermon in 1 Peter chapter 1. The foreknowledge of 1 Peter 1 verse 1 is the same as the foreordination in verse number 20, which shows us that God's election of his people was certain just like the purpose of the death of Jesus Christ for his people. And do you notice when it was purposed or pur- first came about before the foundation of the world. Now, we're just about through. Hang with me just a little bit here. There's another interesting scripture in Acts chapter 13. Acts 13.48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, that is, when they heard the preaching of the apostle Paul, when they heard about Jesus Christ, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Those that were ordained to eternal life believed. Now those who deny the unconditional election of God's people would love to turn that around so that it says, as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. And that's what it would have to say to fit their doctrine, which says that salvation is man's choice and not God's choice. Then they'd be able to say what they truly believe about the subject, and they could write their songs about it, and they could say, Hallelujah, there are new names that are written down, that people's names are written down when they believe, not before the foundation of the world. But that's not what the Bible says. Now, the Scripture says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That is, the appointment of them, the predestination of them was before they believed. Now, folks, that's a very obvious Scripture. And you can imagine that people who oppose the doctrine are going to have to come up with something to refute that Scripture. And so do you know what they say? They say that the word here means disposed, ordained means disposed, and in fact it does. And they say that these people dispose themselves to believe. Now we're going to argue that that is scripturally impossible for a person to dispose himself to believe in Jesus Christ. Now we'll look at that a little bit later time, but the short answer is it's impossible for anybody to dispose themselves. The disposition here is clearly made by God. Now, some of you might question when I go off on some other denomination. Maybe some of you don't like it when I talk about somebody else's denomination. Well, 
let me talk about Baptists for a minute. I mean, would you at least allow me to do this? Can you let me go off on the Baptists for just a minute? I once wrote a Baptist commentator about Acts 13, 48. Now, this was a man who had written a new set of commentaries, and actually I was interested in getting his commentaries because I knew that he was premillennial, dispensational, and you don't find a whole lot of commentaries written from that perspective. And so before I spent the money, which was about four or $500, I decided that I would write to him on, and ask some questions about some key scriptures that I was interested in. And so I wrote him about Acts 13.48, and I said, what does this mean? And you never saw anybody go into such contortions to try to get around the obvious meaning of that scripture. And I think as I was reading his letter of reply to me that he must have been about ready to explode because he was dancing around everywhere, and the explanation that he finally came up with was almost an identical explanation that was given by a man named J.W. McGarvey, who is a commentator from the 19th century, who believed in baptismal regeneration and falling from grace. And so you're in bad company when you go there to try to figure out what the Scriptures mean. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 8 and the Apostle Paul. Now we, we, we surely didn't want to shortchange Peter, so we let him have his say. And uh, Peter sheds light on Paul. Maybe Paul sheds light on Peter. I don't know which, but they agree. Romans 8 again, verse Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now there we see that whom he foreknew, that he foreordained, if you want to use that word, that he elected, that goes in the spot as well, he predestined to be like Christ. Now there's the big thing, isn't it? How is he going to make them like Christ? Well, he does that by effectually calling them through the gospel, by justifying them, by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and then finally by glorifying them, which means giving them a body fitted for heaven like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we notice here that all of that is written in the past tense. And this is what happens when you start with an election that's made before the foundation of the world and you mix in with that God's eternality and God's immutability and God's omniscience, then what do you expect is going to happen? That those who have been chosen by God will finally be glorified. They'll have their place in heaven. And this is a very common way of speaking in the great Greek scriptures that whenever something is certain to happen, it's spoken of as being in the past. Even though there are parts of it that still need to be fulfilled, it's spoken of as being in the past because it's so sure. Now, when you think about that, who could not stand back in amazement at God who planned our salvation, who implemented that plan with the incarnation and the subsequent death of Jesus Christ, and then his Holy Spirit infallibly calls those people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now what I would tell you to do is to fall down on your knees and thank God and stop thinking that this was because of good luck. That, that you're saved because it just happened that way. It fell to your chance to be one who heard the gospel and was able to believe it. Now, I'm telling you that if you believe in Jesus Christ, it's because of God's divine providence. You believe in him because you were a gift that was given to Jesus Christ by God the Father. And again, I'll tell you, why would you be upset about that? Why would you want to argue with that? Now, we have another week to go, but, but let, let, let me just give you one last word here. There may be someone who says, well, I'm very concerned about this because I'm not sure that I'm one of God's elect. Well, I'll tell you to take comfort in this at least, that there's nobody who cares that they're God's elect if they're not God's elect. Nobody really cares. I mean, it's not as if there are people out here, uh, they want to be saved, but God has excluded them from salvation and they can't be saved. And so all of these people are out clamoring and crying, save me from hell, save me from hell. And God says, no, no, you're not one of my elect. No, there's nobody who cares at all about the subject unless God has chosen them. Now, here's the thing that I'm telling you, that all that you have to do to know that you're one of God's elect, you're sitting right here in the congregation today. I'm not telling you to thumb through the Bible and see if you can find your name. 
I'm telling you that if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you will know that you did that because God chose you for salvation. You don't have to figure this thing out. You don't have to get down waiting in the Scripture to find out if you can be saved. I'm telling you right now, you can be saved. And you can be saved by trusting Jesus Christ. And when you come to faith in him, you'll gloriously turn around and say, I did that because God chose me. I'm a child of God because God chose me to be his child. So you believe in Jesus Christ, and then you'll know that God chose you before the foundation of the world. Now, when we get into our next message next week, we're going to talk about this. Maybe it's this time, and I, I still have one coming a little bit later on. But I, I, I want to show you. I want to show you there that we don't really have to worry about the subject, and we don't have to worry about whether we're actually the people of God and we're the elect of God. We we know this by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and that the doctrine of election is never and never was designed to keep anybody out of heaven. That without the doctrine of election, there would be nobody in heaven. Because all would perish indiscriminately. So the doctrine of election is always a positive thing. It's always spoken of in a positive light. That this is why that anybody believes in Jesus Christ. A very important doctrine. We'll come back to it next week. And we'll talk some more about this wonderful doctrine that God has chosen us. And we can thank him for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and... Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the understanding of this. And I know that it's very difficult for people to grasp. And there's a lot of scripture that has to be gone through. There's a lot of understanding that needs to be corrected. And I know, Lord, that uh, sometimes we, we, we do, people do get the feeling, well, it can't be right. It just, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right that God would choose people. And yet we find out going through the Bible in case after case after case after case, there are divine selections. Lord, we thank you that we have trusted you as Savior, and now we know that we did so because you are the one who caused that to happen. We thank you, Lord, for that. Bless your people. Bring someone to faith today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.